Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be reading from verses 9 through 20. And as you're making your way that way, let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a powerful name is the name of Jesus. Father, we pray that Christ would be glorified in all things. That we would understand that this life is but a breath. And the things that we do, Lord, certainly are important, but they will vanish very quickly in light of eternity. And so I pray, Lord God, that our time together would would glorify you and lift your name high, but at the same time, it would edify us and strengthen us, Lord, that we would have the full assurance of your love and your grace that's received by faith in Christ. I pray, Lord God, our time together would make much of Jesus, and I pray that your word, Lord God, would be sacred to us, and it would be something that you would use, Lord, to transform us and change us more and more into the image of Christ, that your sanctification would be ongoing through your word, Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, you are glorified in all that we say and all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Blaise Pascal once wrote, God is none other than the Savior of our wretchedness. So we can only know God well by knowing our iniquities. Those who have known God without knowing their wretchedness have not glorified Him, but have glorified themselves. So have you ever had a heated conversation where you kind of go back and forth with someone over and over, right? But it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere as you go. And you're so certain that you are correct in your point of view. And you were willing to argue, right? And to defend your, your perspective. In fact, you're, you're, everything that they say, right? Everything that they possibly could say, you have an answer for. You have an answer for all of their objections, And you're convinced in your heart and mind that you are right. And you're willing to go point for point, toe to toe with them. But then something happens and then you really begin to listen to the other side and begin to understand their perspective. And then you start to realize that maybe, just maybe, they're right. And then you begin to see it. And then you begin to feel it. But you don't give in to it right away, right? In fact, 
You try to defend your position to the best of your ability, especially if you're arguing with your spouse or one of your kids, right? I mean, you can't admit you're wrong to them. They might not ever let you live it down. Am I right? And so you continue to press the issue and you staunchly defend your point of view, but then you begin to feel it. You begin to feel the strength in you. The strength to fight begins to wane because in the back of your mind, you are coming to terms with the fact that you are fighting a losing battle because you know they're right and that you are wrong. And then it finally gets to the point where you you understand that there is no use keeping up pretenses anymore. You see that it's over. You're just beating a dead horse. There's no way under heaven that you're ever going to, to, to see that, that they're wrong, right? And there's certainly no way under heaven that you're ever going to say the words, you were right and I am wrong. But you know that you can't keep it up. You can't keep fighting. So how do you then begin to signal that the battle is finally over? Well, you... Say things like, okay, fine, have it your way. <laughs> All right. Well, since you're so smart, then you tell me how it works. Okay, where do we go from here now? All right. You've made your point. Now what? Or how about this? <laughs> what then? You're right, okay? What now? By the way, that's the expression that Paul uses here to wrap up his indictment of mankind in his letter. He begins with this phrase, what then? You see, for those of you that might not have been here for the last 15 weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul has been explaining to the Roman church what the gospel is. And he began his explanation by, by exploring the bad news of the gospel the bad news that makes the good news necessary. And he began to unpack the problem that all of humanity faces. The fact that God is holy, righteous, and just, and the fact that we are not. That because of who we are, we are not. In fact, he said that all of mankind knows God exists because God has shown it to them in creation but they refuse to acknowledge God and they refuse to worship God and they suppress the truth about God in order to pursue their own passions and to worship the gods of their own making. And so God in turn gave them over to their lusts and their, and their sin as part of the, his judgment against them. And the point that Paul was making is that mankind is guilty and has without excuse and God is right to judge them, especially those who refuse to acknowledge his existence. That's the case that Paul began to make in Romans chapter 1. But then in Romans chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to those who do acknowledge God's existence. Those who do believe that God is real. But, those who, who, but they're also those who think they're right with God simply because of their nationality. They think that they're right with God because of their culture or their religious practices. Paul begins to point out that they too, just like the others, are under God's judgment and wrath. Which is something that the Jews were not ready to accept because they believed that they were not like the rest of the world. They believed that they were God's special people. They believed that they were immune to God's wrath and judgment simply because they were by their birth Jewish. They believed that they were given a pass simply because they were born into a nation that God had set apart to be a light that would make known who he is to the rest of the world. They thought that they were, they were guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God simply because they were given the law and the covenant sign of circumcision on their bodies. And so they didn't imagine for a moment that they could possibly be on the same level as the rest of those dirty, godless Gentiles in the world. But Paul says they're just like them. He says, you are no different. You do not have an excuse you know the law, but yet you break the law. You judge them for the things that they do, but then you turn around and do the exact same things that they're doing, which means you're just as guilty as they are. You are no better off than they are. It doesn't matter that you're Jewish. It doesn't matter you grew up reading and learning the law. It doesn't matter that you're hyper-religious. It doesn't matter that you have, have, the, have a part of your skin cut off. You are just the same as the rest. That's what we see in Romans chapter 2. 
In, 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 in this part of Romans, Paul basically is having a back and forth argument with an imaginary opponent who represents this common perspective of the Jews. Right? This, this perspective where the Jews would push back against this truth that somehow they are, they are the same as the Gentiles. And so then in this back and forth discu- uh, discussion is where Paul is making his case that all of mankind is in the same boat. But the Jews keep trying to find a way to deny this basic truth. Even to the point, as we saw last week, they begin to blame God, you know, saying it's His fault. Or they even begin to assert that somehow, some way that, that God is obligated to them. Since their badness makes God's goodness look so great, then God is obligated to do good things for them. But Paul successfully dismantles their objections and he reasons from the scripture and he tears down their arguments, leaving the Jews with no alternative but to concede defeat. And how do they do that? How do they finally say, okay, Paul, you win? They finally get to the place where they have nowhere else to go and they ask the question, all right, what then? Okay, smarty pants, now what? If what you're saying is true, if we're in the same boat, what then? This is how Paul represents their position. He asks for them the inevitable question. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are the Jews who are set apart from the rest of the world, these we Jews who were given the law and the prophets and the temple, we Jews who were led out of Egypt by God himself, are we better off in the eyes of God? Right? than these common, godless Gentiles? And Paul's answer simply is this. No, not at all. Now, this is the place where Paul's entire exposition has been leading to. This moment right here, this inescapable conclusion. Are we any better off in the eyes of God than the Gentiles because we're Jews? No, not even close. Not at all. This is a devastating answer, by the way, um, that Paul gives to those who've lived their entire life. Think about this. They lived their entire life thinking that they were God's chosen people simply because of their heritage. That's what they were told since they were kids. A people who thought that they were right with God simply because of their nationality. People who were deeply religious. People who had practiced daily rituals. People whose entire existence was defined by their historic relationship with God. A relationship with God that defined every part of their lives. And it was all they had ever known. They could not fathom how they could not be different from these Gentiles. And so these people are asking, are we better off than the rest of the world? And Paul devastatingly says, no, not at all. And this expression, not at all, like so many English expressions doesn't do justice to the thrust of what Paul is saying. In the Greek, it's emphatic. In fact, it can be rendered probably more accurately as absolutely not. Are we Jews any better off than the rest of the world? Absolutely not. We're just like them. Now, some people would say that Paul, in this particular uh, verse, because of this, is contradicting himself. Because at the beginning, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 3, He asked the question, what advantage does the Jew have? And Paul says, much in every way. Paul says that the Jews have many advantages over the rest of the world. But then a few verses later, you know, the Jews are no different than the rest of the world is what Paul is saying. So how do we reconcile what seems to be a contradiction? Well, it's actually quite simple. Paul affirms that the Jews had been given a privileged position in the world. God had been gracious to them in a way that he hadn't been gracious to anyone else. They were selected by God to receive his word. They were rescued by God himself from bondage in Egypt. They were given the tabernacle and finally the temple. They were set apart by God so that that the world would know God through them. And they were entrusted, as we talked about, with the written revelation of God himself. So yes, they were blessed by God in many important ways. These blessings didn't These blessings were certainly tangible and real. It certainly was an advantage to them. But understand, these blessings didn't change God's requirements for righteousness. This was their error in their thinking. 
These blessings didn't make God like a fickle human being who shows favoritism to certain groups over other groups. Right? These blessings didn't diminish God's perfect standard that is required to have a right relationship with Him, as we've talked about. The way that we have relationship with God is perfect righteousness. Right? These blessings didn't make them better off than the rest of the world with respect to God's requirement for that righteousness. In fact, these blessings should have helped them to see their deficiency and their need for a Savior like the rest of the world. And so being Jewish didn't make them right with God. Being Jewish doesn't make them one of His people. Being Jewish doesn't save them because they are on equal footing with the rest of the world, as Paul says. For we have already charged that all, both, Jews and Greeks are under sin. Paul is saying that we have already made it clear that all people, all of them, both Jew and Gentile alike, have the same exact problem before God. They are under sin. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to see in this little part of the text. Number one, Paul's emphasis is quite clear. He's making a point to lump all of humanity together. The word he uses here for all is really all-inclusive. It means every. It means all possibilities, every human being. And so this is, this is the universal problem of every single human being who's ever lived and ever will live. All of them, both Jew and Gentiles, are under sin. This is for everyone. No one but Christ can claim an exemption from this truth. We are all under sin. And number two, this expression, under sin, communicates more than we might think at first. Again, in the English language, it's easy to miss the underlying issue that Paul's dealing with here. Because Paul is not just saying that all people are sinners. It's not just, that's not the point he's making. I mean, yes, that is the truth. And Paul believed that. And yes, you can infer that from the statement. But that's not the major thrust of this expression that he's making in the Greek. Right? If that's all that Paul meant, he could have just simply said, all people are sinners, right? or all people sin, like he, he's going to say in verse uh, 23 of chapter 3. But when Paul says that all are under sin, he means a lot more than that. He, he means more than just being a sinner. He means that, that people who are under sin are literally enslaved to sin. That's the thrust of the language. The word under in in the Greek is the word hupo, and it means to be under authority of someone else. It means to be directly subordinate to something or someone else. It means to be enslaved to something or someone else. It gives us the idea that Paul is personifying sin as a slave master. The idea isn't that they're just sinners. It's the idea is that they're under the authority and the control of sin. Now this is a truth that's really easy for us when we read in English to, to read past, but this is a truth that's critical for our understanding of the gospel because this reminds us of the truth that we are not simply sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are by nature sinners. It's who we are. This is the foundational understanding we all have to come to. Sin is our sin, and our unregenerate state is our default. It's our nature. It controls us. We are enslaved to it. That's what the New Testament bears witness to. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice the language. Following the course of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin is not just an inclination. Sin is not just a tendency that we have. Sin is not just an attitude. It's not just an activity. It is our very nature before we come to Christ. And so we... Before Christ sets us free, we're enslaved to it. We were subject to it. You see, we're not created good 
and then by our free will choose to do some bad things and they became sinners. No, we were sinners in our very nature and our free will itself was enslaved to that sinful nature. That's what Paul's communicating here. Out our nature is to be enslaved to sin. By the way, that includes our free will. So do we have free will? Yes, we absolutely have free will. All of us have free will. We freely choose lots and lots and lots of things. But our free will, being humans, is limited and constrained by many factors. One of the most important factors that constrains our free will is our nature or who we are. We will never choose contrary to our nature. For example, if I was to take this room and fill it full on this side with a big old pile of fresh carrots, and on this side over here, I piled it full of stinky, rotten meat, okay? And then I was to bring in a, a, a vulture in here, and then I would then give it the free choice to choose whatever it wants to eat. What is it going to choose? The stinking, rotting meat 100% of the time. Why? Because it's his nature. It's his nature, right? Now, is the choice there? Absolutely. There is a choice being presented. Right? The animal is free to choose whichever it wants, the carrot or the meat. Right? Both possibilities exist. But will it choose the carrots? No. Why? It's against its nature to do so. Its free will is enslaved to its very nature. And it's the same with people. You will not make decisions outside of your nature. We will choose according to our nature. That's why sinners choose to do, to do sin. It's their nature. They're under the authority of sin. They're they enslaved to it. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. Paul is not just saying that all of mankind sins. He is saying that they're under the influence and the control of sin. That's what the scriptures bear witness to over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. And that's what we need to understand. If we're going to fully appreciate what Paul has to say in the rest of this text. And so Paul, can, Paul says, For we have all, we've already charged that all, both Greek, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he says, as it is written. And I pause there because we need to really think about what's, what's happening here. Because in the next several verses, Paul is going to reference several passages of the Old Testament in a very short amount of space. In this very small section, he's going to quote from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Proverbs 1, 16, Proverbs 3, 15 through 17, Isaiah 59, 7, and Psalm 36, 1, respectively. It's not he's just going to go one passage of Scripture. He's going to cite a whole bunch of the Old Testament. And the reason why this is important is because the point that Paul is making here, that all of mankind is under sin and all of mankind stands on equal ground, is not a new teaching. It's not a new revelation, as some people would say. It's not a new truth in the first century. Many people today, when they look back on the early church in the Old Testament, they think that God's plan of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament somehow shifted or changed. That God had a program of redemption for the Jews that was through the law in the Old Testament, and then, then when Christ came, then that plan and changed to something completely else, and that plan of redemption is for the Christians through the New Testament. But it's just simply not true. There has always been one plan of redemption conceived in eternity past, and that was for all of God's people. And that was faith in the promise that God would redeem his people by the seed of the woman who would crush the skull of the serpent. That has always been the promise. Redemption has always been about faith in the Messiah. Redemption has always been about faith in Christ. God's people in the past lived by faith, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And God's people now look back in history in faith to the time when the Messiah actually came. And so the program of redemption 
has not changed from Old Testament to New Testament. It's just the New Testament makes more explicit the truths of the Old Testament. But that, which is the truth that Paul makes clear here, the fact that all of mankind, including the Jews, are under sin and liable to God's judgment is not a new teaching that Paul is somehow introducing. The salvation is not by nationality or genetics right, or culture. That it's by faith is not new. Again, we look back even in the scriptures, it talks about Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the consistent teaching of the Bible. The Jews who possessed the law should have understood this, but they overlooked this thinking that they were right with God simply because they were Jews. And so Paul, Paul says, as it is written, as it is written in the scriptures, none is righteous, no, not one. And this is the place where Paul's uh, critique and his, his indictment of mankind kind of begins to crescendo. This is the point that he's been driving to when he began his gospel. This is the place where he's been moving toward, where he said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The overwhelming truth that none, none is righteous. No one lives up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. None have ever fulfilled the covenant of works. None have perfectly kept the law. And if that weren't clear enough, Paul emphasizes this point by saying, no, not one. No one is righteous. It doesn't matter whether you were rich or poor. It doesn't matter what country you were born in. It doesn't matter if you were, you, you were somebody who got good grades in school or if you're that kid that failed every class. It doesn't matter if you were the best kind of kid that everybody in the neighborhood loved or you're that, that troublemaker that everybody hated. It doesn't matter if you were male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It doesn't matter if you have dark skin or light skin. No one is righteous. No one is right with God on their own. No one has earned God's favor by their own efforts. This is the universal truth that unites all of humanity. We are exactly the same before God. The Jews believed for some reason that their religious traditions made them different. They believed their nationality made them different. They believed their history made them different. But Paul makes it clear that none is righteous. And then he says, no one understands. This right here is a part of the text that I've read through literally hundreds and hundreds of times in, in my life as a Christian. I've read this passage probably a hundred times preparing for this message, but, I've, but Romans is a book I've read multiple times, and this particular passage I've read more than I can count. But, it, but I really didn't take time before to pause long enough to, to think about what, what's being said here. Why is this phrase included here? Why does he say no one understands? I, I mean... He's made his point, I think, right? Nobody's righteous. We get that, right? He said that. It's clear. But then why add to it, no one understands? There's something he's trying to communicate to us here. Well, the word that's translated as understand from the Greek is a word that means to put together or to synthesize. In other words, it's an expression that means to put together or join together facts and ideas into a complete thought or an understanding. It's the idea of taking the pieces of information and synthesizing them into a complete, intelligible whole. The idea that Paul is communicating is the information is there, it's available, but the information isn't being processed, right? Because they don't have the ability to process or put the pieces of the puzzle together. They don't understand because they don't have the ability to connect the dots. That's really the thrust of what Paul is doing here. Why would he say that? Why would he say that they don't have the ability to synthesize the truth or understand? Because they are under sin. They are enslaved to sin. Sin not only corrupts our bodies and our actions, it also corrupts our minds. 
They don't understand because sin has corrupted their ability to take truth from God's word and, and, and synthesize it into an understanding that would lead them to life. They can't do it because of the corruption of sin. By the way, this is what's meant by, by the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity isn't that people are evil in every possible way that they can be evil. That's not what it means. That's utter depravity. The doctrine of total depravity means that all of mankind's faculties have been corrupted by sin. All of mankind's faculties are enslaved by sin. His emotions, his desires, his reasoning ability, his thinking ability, all of those things are corrupted by sin. That's why he's not righteous. And that's why he doesn't understand. Sin corrupts him thoroughly. And so he doesn't understand because he can't understand. This again is why we say and remind you that salvation is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit himself. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes and changes our hearts and illuminates our minds and then convicts us of our sin and then helps us to see who we really are in light of God's holy standard that we finally understand. Our minds and cognitive abilities are thoroughly corrupted by sin until God does something in us. By the way, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they became what? Futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools. No one understands because they can't until God himself changes their hearts and open their minds. And then Paul says, no one seeks for God. And right here is a truth that hurts a lot of feelings. This is a verse that so many people want to get around. This is a verse that people don't like to talk about. This is one that hurts a lot of people's feelings. No one, no one seeks for God. This is the same language, by the way, Paul's been using throughout these, this universal, you know, none, no one. All these are rooted together in the same root words. It's clear he's talking in universal language here. No one seeks for God. And the verb that Paul uses here actually is in the present tense and it's active, meaning that not only is no one seeking, has no one sought for God, but no one right now in this moment is seeking for God. And the verb that Paul uses here means to search and seek with intention, emphasizing that a person would be, would be intently seeking something out, looking, something, looking for something that they deeply desire and long for. And what Paul is saying is no one does that. No one pursues God on their own, even if they say that they are. Right? And this really here is an unpopular truth, especially in our modern context, because much of mainstream Christianity has this false understanding of humanity and human desire for God. Many people believe that there are people all around us who by their own choice are searching and seeking out God. They call themselves God-seekers. That they're on the, you hear language like this all the time, that they're, that they're on a journey to find God, that they're searching for God. Well, they're searching for something, but it's not God. The false understanding of God-seekers is, is what has given rise to one of the greatest sicknesses in the church in history, and that is the seeker-sensitive movement. Now, please, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here. I completely understand and identify with the intentions behind the movement. I understand and identify with, with those intentions. The intention of this movement is that we want to tear down barriers. We want to keep people moving in a direction towards God. We want to take down all the things that get in the way of people coming to church. We want to get rid of the things that might keep people from knowing God. Because ultimately what we want, the reason why this movement started is because we want people to come to know Christ. And I will say that those are in good intentions. But as the old saying says, hell is paved. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Because the theology is completely horrible. This understanding that of mankind is unbiblical. And as a result, many people think that everyone is spiritual and seeking God in their own way. We just need to create this space so that they can accidentally find Him. And this kind of thinking has led people to conclude that what we need to do is remake the church in the image of the world so we can attract people to the church. That we can create an environment where non-believers are attracted and come and worship God. Which, by the way, is an oxymoron. Because 
unbelievers don't worship God because they can't. They're unbelievers. And the result has been that, that they've tried to create a church that makes you feel more like a social club, a, a, a church that's, that's like, more like a concert, a church that's more like a TED talk. It's less like a worship service. It's prescribed by God and His Word. By the way, this is why so many of the songs today in popular mainstream circles are so nebulous and non-descriptive and non-specific in their language about God. You can hear lots of songs on Caleb that never even mention the name of Christ. This is why so much of what is considered as worship music today is focused on the feelings of the singer rather than the truth about who God is. This is why preaching is shallow and focused on how to live a better life rather than knowing God and being saved. This is why churches don't talk about sin or hell or the wrath of God, but rather they, they talk about eight ways to have a better marriage. Or did you know that the United States is in the Bible in the end times? It's, it's about attracting attention rather than drawing people to the truth. It's about creating an environment where people who are seeking God will feel comfortable and feel unchallenged by the truth in the hopes that they will encounter Jesus in some way and then by osmosis get saved. It's this kind of thinking that has led to the, to the nonsense slogan, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. As if somehow that you being nice to people is going to lead people to Christ. And, and what this all has led to is a theologically anemic church and services that are full of people who were unsaved and unable to glorify God in their corporate worship. But the truth is, Paul says, no one seeks for God. Even if they tell you, I'm seeking for Him. The only people who are seeking for God are those that the Holy Spirit has placed in them the desire to seek for God. When you encounter someone who's genuinely seeking for God, when you see there's a hunger to know God, what you need to know is that is not of them, it is of, of God working in them. Everyone else is just seeking something else. Maybe they're seeking a way to feel loved. Lots of people come to church just simply because they just want to be loved. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, humanly speaking. But that doesn't mean they're seeking for God. Many people come to church because they're seeking community. Many people say they're seeking God, but they're really just seeking a sense of self-righteousness. Many people are seeking self-fulfillment. Other people are just seeking what they think to be the truth. I've listened to Jordan Peterson for, for years, talk about a lot of things, and you see him like he is, like he's not a Christian, but, but he's dancing back and forth with the Christian truths, and it slaps him in the face, but he just can't get there because he's pursuing a truth outside of who God is. We just pray that God, by the Holy Spirit, pierces his heart and that the gospel finally breaks through. Mankind may be seeking all manner of false gods, but he isn't seeking the one true God, or at least... They're not seeking a true relationship with him. Other people who legitimately seek for God, other, the only people who are legitimately seeking for God are those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to seek for him. And we encounter those people, and those people are in different stages of their life. Some of them, the Holy Spirit's just begin to convict them of their sin. Some of those people have finally begun to, to, to embrace theology. Some of them are getting really, really close. Some of them, you know, are bouncing back and forth. What we can do is continue to bear witness and love on them. But Paul says, no one seeks for God. And then he says, all have turned aside. They're not only not seeking God, but they've turned away from God. They have turned from the truth. And the adjective that he uses here, turned aside, means to fully avoid by deliberate and decisive rejection. It's not an accidental like, hey, I, I just missed you. This is like, I saw him in the store, and I completely turned the other way. Right? For all their religiousness, for all their self-righteousness, for all their festivals and rituals, the Jews, like everyone else, had turned aside from the truths of God. Mankind is not only not seeking God, but he is running from him in his own way. And I think if you've been someone who lived a very long time as an adult before Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Turning from God, running from God. And then Paul says they have, they have become 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now the word worthless means to be, become sour. The expression is like becoming sour like sour milk. It's to become useless and unprofitable. Good for nothing is the, is the way that the, with the word works itself out. Paul is saying that mankind has become thoroughly corrupt to the point that he's useless. This is the point that so many people fail to see. Because if you ask people just on the street, just their personal opinion, do you deserve to go to heaven or hell? They'll always, almost always say, I deserve to go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. That is the universal consensus of everybody about themselves. It didn't matter that they, you know, were just, you know, watching porn at home, right? It didn't matter that, you know, they've been divorced four times. It doesn't matter, you know, that they decided to spend money on themselves, you know, getting, you know, made up instead of spending the money they need on their kids. It doesn't matter that, that they're liars at heart. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who you talk to. Everybody thinks that they're a good person, right? I, I even saw this one Facebook post that says, I have a good heart, <laughs> but this mouth. And I thought, man, you have not read the Bible, have you? <laughs> Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everybody thinks that they're a good person. Everybody thinks that they deserve to go to heaven, that they believe that there are redeeming value in them, enough, sufficient for God to say, yep, come on in. What Paul is saying is there's nothing in us that's deserving. We are utterly unworthy is the point that he's making. We are unworthy for life. And then Paul adds, no one does good, not even one. Now understand, Paul uses the word here for good. It's really a bit odd because, because, people, because Paul is not saying that people can't do good things. He's not saying people are not capable of doing good things because we know that people are. We know that that even those who don't profess faith in God, those who say that they're atheists, can do good things. I mean, we know atheists that have done charitable things and they've done good things for other people. So Paul is not saying people don't do good things. Instead, he uses the word in the Greek to convey a deeper sense of what it means to be good. So he uses the word for good that refers to meeting real needs of other people the way that God would. You see, that God does good because He is good. That's His nature. It's who He is. Mankind does good in spite of the fact that He's not good. And the good that He does ultimately isn't good because there's a selfish motive behind the good that He does, even if He thinks that He's doing it for someone else for their own benefit. Typically, mankind does the good that he does because either, because either it makes him feel better about himself right? or to, to look good in front of other people. I mean, that's what social media is about, right? How many times you can't even like flip on social media without somebody making a point to, to show themselves handing a homeless guy a bunch of cash, right? You can't, you can't help to find on social media people walking around trying to be nice and do good to other people but making sure they get it on film. People do good, the good that they do to, to, to look good in front of other people. Other people do good because they want to assuage the sense of guilt. They feel like I've done so many bad things, I better start doing some good things. Other people do good to fulfill some sense of moral responsibility. And other people do good because doing good brings them joy. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's still selfish. It's still about you. Mankind doesn't do good because he's good. Right? Mankind does good for selfish reasons. No one is truly loving their neighbor because they're good people. They do so because there's something in it for them to do so. So in spite of the fact they can do good things, they're not good, which means the good that mankind does really isn't, in God's terms, good. In fact, Isaiah addresses this so clearly for us. Isaiah 64, 6, he says, We become like one who is unclean in all of our righteous deeds. All the good that we can possibly do for any other human being is like a polluted garment. It's trash before God. Not to say that the good deeds aren't good in some respect, but before God, to make us good, it's nothing but garbage. No one does good. 
And so Paul uses the Old Testament to drive home the point that all of mankind is in this, has the same problem. He's at odds with God because he's enslaved to sin to the point he can't even understand God's truth. And not only does he not seek for God, he deliberately turns aside from God. And then he's become worthless. And he's to the point that he doesn't do anything really good anyway. This is kind of the crescendo of Paul's indictment. Paul's painting a picture of the human condition that's inescapable. No one who's ever lived or ever will live can stand up before God and say, I'm good. I'm worthy. I have earned God's favor. But this is why it's a dangerous doctrine you hear some people talk about. um, They call call themselves sinless perfectionists, that when they put their faith in Christ, they don't sin anymore. Going, you didn't read this book, did you? I deserve fellowship with God because I have fulfilled God's righteous standard. No one can say those things. What Paul is doing is destroying and demolishing and obliterating any sense of self-righteousness that any human being can possibly have, Jew or Gentile. There is no escaping the truth of human depravity before God. There is no escaping our need to be supernaturally rescued by God himself. Paul makes it clear that all mankind stands condemned before God by his own choice, by his own nature, and there's nothing we can do to change it on our own. And if that weren't enough, he isn't even done yet. Because he continues to quote Old Testament scriptures and he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. What an indictment. Now what you need to see here is there's actually a pattern to the things that Paul is saying here. This is not just a random collection of accusations strung together. They're actually arranged in a pattern for a reason. Look at verses 13 through 14. We see words like throat, tongue, lips, and mouth. That's on purpose. These are instruments of speech or words. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see words like feet, path, and way. These are instruments of direction, instruments of action, or a way. What Paul is saying is that mankind is corrupted not only in mind and in attitude, but he's corrupted in his words and in his ways. Again, look at verses 13 through 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps and on their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Mankind uses the words that he has as a tool of destruction. Mankind uses his words to harm other people, which, by the way, is something that we are all guilty of. We all understand this in some level. We've all used our words to harm other people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. We've all gossiped about someone else. We have all lied about someone else. We have all deceived other people. We have all intentionally said things in order to inflict emotional damage on other people. Tell me I'm wrong. That you haven't purposely went to someone and formulated in your mind the thing that you know that when you say it, it is going to cut them deepest. We have done, we have all done that. We have used language to to be a weapon against someone. Even the most loving person you have ever met in your life has used their words to harm other people at some point. But not only do we use our words, we also use our actions. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined in misery and the way of peace they have not known. We have all done evil in our actions toward other people and before God. We have all done unspeakable things to other people. We have betrayed people. We have been unfaithful to them. We have taken advantage of people. We have failed to love them when they needed our love the most. We have mistreated other people. All of us carry around things that we are desperately ashamed of. We have all sinned greatly in our words and our ways. And then Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is quoting Psalm 36.1, which says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. This finally is the point that Paul has been getting at ever since chapter 1, verse 18. 
This is the reason why mankind stands condemned before God. This is why the Gentiles suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is why the Jews think that God owes them something. This is the reason why Gentiles refuse to give God the glory that he deserves and why the, the Jews think that they should be given a pass, pass simply because of, of their nationality, that they shouldn't be held accountable for their sin. This is the same root problem that we all have. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the problem of mankind. There is no fear of God. There's no reverence to God. There's no holy respect and dread of God. Listen to some of your so-called Christian friends who will, will say, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. I, I understand that Jesus calls us friend, but that's because he called us friend. Not that I have the right to call him friend. Mankind's view is way too shallow of God. It's way too low. There's a distinct lack of respect and fear of God. And, and the reason for that is simply this, that most people don't even know who God is. They don't know Him. They know about Him from creation. They know about Him from religious traditions. But they don't truly know Him. Because if they did know Him, if they truly understood that He is the holy, sovereign King of the universe, their attitude toward Him would be different. They would be in awe of who he is. Like the prophet Isaiah, when he encountered God, he said, what? Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. I've seen, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, or John, the friend of Jesus when he sees the resurrected Christ. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The root of man's universal problem is that he doesn't fear God because he doesn't know God. There is no fear of God before their eyes because if they knew God, they would know that he was holy, righteous, just, and transcendent. They would see that God is glorious beyond all of our comprehensions. If they knew God, they would see his righteousness and they would see in themselves how completely unrighteous they are, which in effect is the point of the law. The point of the law is to reveal to us the, unrighteous, I mean, the righteousness of God and how we fail to achieve that righteousness. In fact, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by, his works, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul masterfully takes apart... the. The, the Jews' self-righteousness presents his case against all humanity, demonstrating that man's guilt is universal, right? And then he comes right back at the end of this presentation to the source of pride for the Jews, which is the law. And he gives us the purpose of the law. He says that the law, they saw, they saw the Jews saw the law as proof that they were favored in status. They saw that the law was a reason for them to boast in who they were. And many people would accuse Paul of dismissing the law in his gospel. In fact, a lot of people think that the law has no purpose anymore. But Paul makes it clear the law still is relevant, and he spells out for us how the law is relevant. He says there are four, there's four important things that we'll wrap up with, with respect to the law. He says, number one, the law reveals sin. Paul says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law is not a rule book that we obey in order to make ourselves right with God. But rather, the law is the standard by, of God's righteousness by which we measure ourselves to see where we're lacking. It is a mirror in which to look that we may see who we really are in light of who God is. The law helps us to see the, the, the condition of our, our tr the truth of our condition. It reveals to us that we are in sin. It helps us to see the truth. And then number two, he says, the law speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The point that Paul is making here is the law doesn't make people right with God. It makes them defenseless when they're judged. 
The image that Paul is painting here is that when we stand and we face God and the charges against us are finally read, that we will have nothing to say in our own defense. There are a lot of people who think that they're going to be able to argue their way into heaven, that somehow, someway, they're going to be able to give a reason or a defense for their, their wrongdoing. Paul is saying is we won't be able to deny our wrongdoing. We will not be able to justify our actions, no matter how good our intentions. The law will close our mouths. And number three, what Paul is Paul saying that through the, through the law, the entire world will be held accountable to God. You see, Paul is making it clear that, that God is not partial and that he's going to hold everyone to his standard of righteousness and judge them based on what they do. And the law is the standard by which God will hold humanity accountable. Every human being will be held to this standard of righteousness and every human being will be found wanting. God will use the law to hold the world accountable. And then in light of all of this, Paul says no human being will be justified by works of the law. Right? It, if it wasn't clear already, Paul takes the remaining remnants of hope for self-righteousness by our own actions and he obliterates them. And he says very clearly, no human being will ever be justified. No human being will ever, ever, ever be justified by works of the law. Why? Because you can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't keep the entirety of the law. Adam, who was uncorrupted in nature, he failed to keep the law. How is mankind then, who is enslaved to sin, going to keep the law? How is mankind whose mind is corrupted by sin going to keep the law? How is mankind who doesn't even have the ability on his own to seek for God going to keep the law? How is mankind who has a tendency to turn and run from God going to keep the law? How is mankind who uses his words and his ways to harm other people going to be able to keep the law? How is mankind who in his own way doesn't have a sufficient fear or reverence for God himself going to somehow keep the law? The answer is very simple. It's not going to. For by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in God's sight. It's impossible. And this right here is where Paul finally wraps up his indictment against mankind. Mankind is under the divine judgment of God for his own sin. And there's no way for him to be justified before a holy and righteous and just God by his religiosity, by his obedience to some standard, by his own efforts. Right? That's the place that all of the world must come to. And then finally, when you are standing at this low point, you can finally look up and see your need for the good news. And Paul, in a few short verses, will declare, and I'll give you a preview. For all have sinned, a summary of everything he said. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he turns the corner and says, and are justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Finally, once you get to the point where you finally have rid yourself of self-righteousness, once you finally get to the point where you understand that you are not going to make yourself right with God by your own efforts. That God has not called you to try to live in some, some legalistic religion. That God has not called you to, to visit temples. That God has not called you to go and, and knock on doors and pass out fake Bibles. That God has not called you to somehow earn your way into His favor. That God has called you to finally see who you are and see how, how undeserving you are and how needy you are, that finally you can look up and receive the gift that He's holding out for you, the gift of His grace, that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast, that we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, again, not by somehow, Lord, I'm going to try really hard. By coming to the cross and saying, Lord, I'm helpless. Save me. That's the gospel. And that's 
the place that we have to help all of our neighbors and friends get to. All of our neighbors and friends, as we have looked through Romans chapter 1 through 3, we will see people in varying degrees in that spectrum somewhere. People who just don't think that they need God. People who think that they're already right with God simply because they're good people. We need to help them to see that all of us universally are in the same exact place. That we have rebelled against God willfully on our own. And that we have run from Him. But God, by His grace, through Christ, has pursued us. And the Holy Spirit has come upon us to change our hearts and minds. And there's only one thing that we have left to do is to repent and believe the gospel. And the promise then, then is if we will do that, that the righteousness that Christ has earned will be ours. Our sins will be completely washed away. We'll have life eternal. And the Holy Spirit then will come and live inside of us, sanctifying us, changing us, and shaping us more and more in the image of Christ. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That's the gospel we hold out and hope to the rest of the world. Let us continue to do that. And if you haven't done so, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.